0: When you think about the engineering prowess that exists in this industry, if anybody's going to come up with a solution, it's going to be the oil and gas industry.
1: The Energy in Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future, and these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by PISA, the Petroleum Equipment and Services Association, Lockton Companies, and Galtway Marketing. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to the Energy and Transition Podcast. This is your host Leslie Byer. Uh, we are coming to you today from the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio in Houston, um, and I'm so pleased to welcome our guest, Dr. Ken Medlock, today, and a good friend of ours for a long time. Dr. Medlock is the Senior Director for the Center for Energy Studies at the Baker Institute at Rice University. He's a director of the Masters of Energy of Economics program. He is in the Department of Economics, the Department of Civil Environmental Engineering, a ton of boards um, all around energy and environment initiatives and an authority on the industry, obviously, and the geopolitical nature of of our oil and gas industry. So thank you, Dr. Medlock, for joining us. I appreciate you being here. It's
0: a pleasure to be here, Leslie.
1: Thank you. So we met a couple years ago, um, and I'm so grateful to have you present every time we have Foreign Service officers come into Houston. We do their training. We give them technical training at PISA. And the first day, we start with an outlook, a geopolitical outlook up at the Baker Institute at Rice, which is so impressive. I've always walking up to the building, coming on a bus with people that have flown in from all over the world on red eyes, and we walk in, and you give us about an hour on understanding the geopolitical nature, like I said, of the industry and just the scale of it. And they walk away from that first interaction, their first, you know, exposure to the industry, just with minds blown kind of about what oil and gas really means. So
0: I got to tell you, those are always really fun engagements. And over the years, uh, because I think we've been engaged on this for, you know, over a decade, right? Oh, for sure. Um, uh, over the years, I've uh, on occasion run into to foreign service officers who are stationed in different countries at embassies uh, who have been through the class, and so it's always fun to sort of talk to them and they reflect back on that entire experience uh, and they just uh, really gush about how much they learned and, and about the industry in general and about how important it is and. Um, that's one thing that I'll just, I'll just say over the last decade or so has really changed, uh, foreign service officers before they deploy, they come in with a, a really keen interest in understanding energy markets because it has such a dramatic impact, you know, specifically what's happening in North America on what they do because, um, the shale revolution has been game changing in many ways, but one that most people don't understand is what oil and gas has actually done for us foreign policy. It's changed the nature of the conversations and, Every one of those service officers understands that.
1: They do. But what they don't understand is the technology behind it. And, you know, you talk a lot about legacy and scale and technology, and they really do. It's just amazing. They're such an important stakeholder, really, in how we operate with foreign policy from the United States. And I just I'm always appreciative of the way they walk away going, oh, my gosh, I never knew. Now I know. And, and they're kind of predisposed to not be particularly friendly to us.
0: Yeah, in, I mean, at they're, times. They're, to some extent. I mean, uh, you know, in some cases, you've got Service off, foreign service officers who are recycling, right? So they've been somewhere, maybe where energy was already part of their portfolio. Uh, regardless of that, there is always a uh, a, a definitely a, a learning experience because, and this is true, I think generally in the public, there's very little appreciation for the scale of of the energy industry. And um, when I talk about scale, it's not just the amount of infrastructure; it's the size of projects. I mean, you're talking about in numbers that you know, can very readily exceed the millions and billions very quickly. You aggregate that up and you realize, well, this is not something that turns over in a day. And that's important for their jobs, actually, because when you start talking about foreign policy engagement, infrastructure that's on the ground, maybe in the places they're going to, the influence that those energy sources have had on domestic politics and how that connects to the foreign policy domain, they begin to understand that it's not going to change overnight. Uh, it's something that is gonna be lasting so um yeah it's it's a great a great opportunity to to share you know what we do Um, and engage in those conversations.
1: I wish we could educate others in such a targeted (laughs) kind of way. So part of your day job, can we talk a little bit more about what you do at the Baker Institute kind of in your, when you're not giving your free time to PISA? Well, yeah,
0: I, um, I'm very blessed to uh, be surrounded by just outstanding individuals. Um, So a little uh, more than seven years ago now, uh, I took over the reins of what was then called the Energy Forum. It was the energy program at the Baker. Institute and you know very well recognized ranked number six in the world largely on the back of you know individual achievement Um, and what I tried to do is create an organizational structure that will allow for growth and over the next several years we uh, in terms of ranking as we grew went to number four number three and actually the last three years we've been number one um in the I world. Didn't realize that. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah. So it's it's been an honor and it really is a testament to the to the people that I get to work with every day. And you know, we have a, a tremendous team, uh, highly varied backgrounds. Uh, ranging from economics to political science to chemistry to uh, I mean, there's a couple of lawyers on our staff. I mean, it's sort of rain big range, right? What that does is it allows us all to interact in ways that really benefit one another. You know understand what's happening at a technical level with many things so that we can begin to see how that connects to the reality on the ground and how that's going to shape things as we move forward, not only in the commercial space but also in the uh, political space. And so that's, uh, that's a that's a privilege. Um, we have programs um, in the in the Center for Energy Studies on uh, electricity policy. So this is a pretty lengthy list. Uh, electricity policy, energy and transportation, water and energy. Uh, that's largely focused on, uh, uh, you know, uh, water for oil field services, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, environment and sustainability, global oil and gas, Energy and Minerals, which is one of our newest programs, Um, big focus on supply chains that are developing as energy markets transition. Um, And I know we're going to come back to that discussion. We are.
1: I can't wait to talk about that.
0: Um, Yeah, geopolitics of energy and uh, a big focus on Latin America because we just have a comparative advantage to addressing issues in Latin America. So a lot of breadth. Uh, in terms of what we what we address.
1: For sure. And it's not just the instruction of those programs. I know that companies, you know, even the national oil companies, they really seek out your group for advice. I know you do a lot of global travel. Um, so what is that aspect of it?
0: We do actually, uh, there's a lot of engagement internationally. Um, in fact, m- many of our fellows have what we would equate to an honorary appointment at different institutions around the world. Like I'm a distinguished fellow at the Institute for Energy Economics, Japan, uh, have had fellowships at Curtin University in Perth, Australia, CAPSARC, um, which is in Riyadh. Um, other uh, of my colleagues have similar kinds of arrangements in different universities around the world, other think tanks. And it gives us the opportunity to engage not only with other researchers, but also uh, other governments. Uh, so you know, just prior, pre-pandemic, for example, um, I've spent time in Riyadh, in South Korea, in Japan, uh, in the UAE, in Brazil. Mm-hmm talking with policymakers about things that are going on um, uh, in their own countries. And that's a fantastic opportunity because you get to see how different things are everywhere, right? And and it's led me to sort of the realization that we definitely view the world from where we sit. That very much shapes our perspective on things like energy transitions, energy choice, you know, however you want to frame it. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about the pandemic is it's put a crimp in that travel, right? So we really haven't been physically moving around the world, but that also means there's no downtime getting on a plane, right, and flying. So I've had days, for example, where I'll give a lecture uh, on, an, on, a, on a Riyadh afternoon, which is early morning here. As a matter of fact, today uh, I participated in a webinar in Riyadh, so I was up at 5.45 to sort of be on, on that. And then uh, in the evening, uh, I'll actually do something in Rio de Janeiro um, related to natural gas reforms in Brazil. That's all in one day, and and before you really couldn't do that. So that's one of the sort of interesting things about the the COVID era, right? It's really highlighted what a virtual presence can bring, and it's busy.
1: It's busy, for sure. It's a different kind of busy, I know. Um, And I'm going to want to get back to that, the COVID-19 impacts on the industry, but just to kind of set the stage. So we talked about the area of focus for this podcast, you know, understanding the role of oil and gas in the future of energy, how energy transition is about the mix and how the mix is going to be different regionally, how it's going to be different in the OECD countries than the non-OECD. And, you know, when I first started listening to your lectures, one of the things that just really impacted me was understanding demand and how demand growth in China and India and and the non-OECD countries, how that's really going to just make the pie itself bigger and our slice inherently is going to have to become bigger because renewables are not going to catch up fast enough to, you know, cover everything. And that's why oil and gas are going to be such an important part of our, not only our mix, but the supply chains for all the other Types of of energy. So can you start yeah, maybe with demand on ab- that?
0: Absolutely. So um, it's sort of fun to talk about these things with some anecdotes, right? So the way I usually discuss, you know, shifting presence in a market is a lot of times people want to talk about market shares, and the problem with the discussion that focuses solely on market share is it typically makes the implicit assumption that the size of the pie doesn't change. And that can be a problem. So I mean, if, if 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 you're talking about a particular market size, which is the size of the pie, and you have 50% of that market, then if the size of the pie doesn't change and, and your shares reduced to 25%, you have a much smaller footprint. But if I double the size of the pie and my market share shrinks to 25%, I actually have the same physical presence that I did before. It's just that other things have grown around me. Um, And so that's actually a really important point when we think about how energy markets have evolved in the past and how they're probably gonna evolve in the future. Um, Market shares, uh, just in terms of global energy presence, continue to evolve. Uh, The interesting thing about hydrocarbons is for the last 40 years, they've basically held serve. Um, You know, been in the order of 80% of of global energy use. That is going to have to change, um, just to be blunt, because most of what has driven historical energy demand growth has been growth in really the wealthy world. Um, uh, Typically, we can frame this in terms of OECD versus non-OECD. So the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, is the richest set of countries on the planet. Of course, the U.S. is included in that, Canada, Mexico, all of Western Europe, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, Chile is the newest member. Um, but that collective group of countries is about 1.3 billion people, you know, on a planet that has a significantly greater population than that. Um, so. You know, you think about the rest of the world, 1.3 billion in the wealthy part of the world. That's effectively the population of China. Uh, India is not too far behind. You think about the ASEAN region. So this is a Southeast Asian collection of countries that has gone through fits and starts with economic growth. But there's still you know, some significant poverty in the region as well as some areas of you know tremendous prosperity. But um, you put a sort of ring around that part of the world and call it developing Asia. Um, You're talking about a population that's on the order of 3.3 or so billion people. Um, That's a huge number. Uh, That is more than two and a half, roughly two and a half times the size of the OECD. And it's a region that's growing dramatically and has really been the driver of demand growth for the last 20 years globally. Um, They're using everything. They, you know, the, the dramatic increase in the use of coal globally has been driven by everything that's happening in the non-OECD, not the OECD. It is, when you think about the future of global natural gas markets, it is the target environment for growth in natural gas demand. And there's nothing to dissuade me from thinking that that won't come to pass. Um, and as a matter of fact, typically when you just want to figure out how markets are going to evolve, look, and where, look at where infrastructure is being development, kind of follow the money, in other words, right? And you'll figure out very quickly what's going on. Um, But that group of countries still has a long way to go to catch up in terms of per capita income. So individual wealth that we see in the OECD, and that's going to bring with it a lot of energy demand growth. Now, 1.3, 3.3, I'm up to, you know, 4.6, maybe 4.7 if it's 3.4 and some change, right? But um, that still leaves 3 billion people I haven't even talked about. Uh, and so that's Central Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Latin America, Um, and there are massive segments of those populations that don't have access to modern energy services. So um, if you just put, you know, your long view on the world of energy, the first thing you note is it is very much a world of haves and have-nots. As a matter of fact, all of the wealth that we see in the OECD and access to energy services, which are largely a foregone conclusion um, for that 1.3 billion people, there's as many people in the world that don't have anything. So you very much see a, a bifurcation in terms of energy access along that along those wealth dimensions. Um, that's not acceptable, uh, and populations in the rest of the world understand that, uh, and they're striving for a better tomorrow. Uh, energy is critical to that. How we actually provide that energy? an open question, right? Um, but the one thing that is certainly true, and it's been true for the history of humankind, is we typically use what we have first. That's why China grew in coal. That's why the U.S. grew in coal, right? I mean, it, U.S. is home to 27% of the world's recoverable coal. So why why wouldn't we use that first, right? Uh, China's done the same thing. India is doing the same thing. Um, and so you get into discussions, all right, well, if that's happening, what about CO2 emissions, which is really the central driver of discussions uh, policy discussions related to the energy transitions. Um, I think it's just real quick. That's an important point. Energy transitions is a, is the appropriate way to say it because um, you know there's kind of different strokes for different folks. Well, it's the same idea there, right? I mean, in certain places around the world, certain things will work, but other things won't. Um, so it's important to recognize that transitions are it's 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 different everywhere right? We have to use these things in, in the plural sense. But technology is at the center of it, policies at the center of it. There will be regions 100 years from now that are still using oil because they have the cheapest oil on the planet and they have a comparative advantage in doing things that use oil. Now, the way we combust oil, the way we combust gas, that's an open question. It might change, right? Um, but it doesn't mean those hydrocarbon resources won't be needed to meet the projected demands that are coming around the world because Look, there's a lot of things that are promising. Renewables their intermittency is a big issue. People immediately jump to batteries or hydrogen through electrolysis. Well, the scale of infrastructure needed to deliver the types of energy services that are required, it's not going to happen in 10, 20, 30, even 40 years. So we've got to think about ways to leverage existing energy infrastructures to facilitate everything that's going to happen around the world. There's, there's a massive demand pull. Um, and that's just something that everybody at some point is going to have to reconcile. Um, without a doubt, you know, we can talk about ESG, we can talk about environmental impact. Those are those are those are issues that aren't going away. Um, and so it's really incumbent upon the industry to to get creative, figure out ways to overcome those issues, and at the si- and at the same time meet the demands that are coming because they're coming.
1: And how we talk about energy poverty is so important because that is not a message that even I, you know, I've only really worked around and in, in the industry for eight years about. And it's just a concept that I don't hear often, you know, energy poverty, the, all those people that you mentioned that really do truly have no access, um, you know, everything that we're doing for climate change is very, you hear about it so much and viewing the world where you sit, you know, from us in North America, and we feel like, you know, we really have to make these efforts, but really it's, it's just not, um, it's not feasible to think that we don't need to take a broader view, uh, at how those people that really have no access are going to, are going to access energy. And I think that how do you, how do you talk about how that drives like the political conversation right now in the United States?
0: That's a great question. Um, politics are local right? That's a very old saying. So when you talk about things like climate change, you talk about things like CO2 mitigation. Um, those are local discussions. They're not global discussions. Obviously, when you talk about climate change, it's a problem of the global commons. So what's happening everywhere in the world definitely matters. But that's where foreign policy comes in. That's where tech transfer comes in. There's, there's all sorts of things that, um, just to be blunt, the industry, the oil and gas industry could be leaders in. Um, And I think it's important. And you're seeing some evidence of this starting to emerge, right? A recognition that, you know, thinking about cleaner combustion technologies, thinking about carbon capture utilization and storage or carbon capture and storage, thinking about nature-based solutions, all these things are coming under the, they're, they're coming into scope for the oil and gas industry. And when you think about the engineering prowess that exists in this industry, If anybody's going to come up with a solution, it's going to be the oil and gas industry. And I think that is something that's starting to resonate more and more. Um, It doesn't resonate in every circle politically um, for a variety of reasons, but it really doesn't matter. If you're after solutions, you're after solutions.
1: Right. But why doesn't it resonate in the capital markets? (laughs) I mean, you know, these, I feel like the investor sentiment against us is, is just turned so negatively that we're starving these companies of cash. They're losing the ability to attract talent. How are we going to hang on to those engineers?
0: So that's a great question. I think there's a couple of things that we have to look at. It's not just about, um, ESG considerations. Um, the industry, and, and you know I'm going to paint a, with broad brushstrokes here because there are different actors that have done very well and others that haven't, but the industry in general, and this is pretty well documented, has not done a really great job of generating really attractive returns over the last decade or so. Um, that will begin to dissuade capital, even if you don't layer in the ESG component. Um, ESG becomes a, a, a considerable weight when you have these low margin opportunities like you have right now in a depressed price environment, lower demand environment, um, uh, and a history of inadequacy in terms of capital returns. And capital does what capital does. It's gonna seek the highest possible return. Um, ESG is sort of that incremental weight, if you will. But I would hazard a guess that if price were to recover to the $60 range, say, um, and uh, uh, operators in the oil and gas domain figured out ways to cut costs and increase efficiency, it would become a much more attractive domain for capital to flow into. Um, These things ebb and flow. Uh, but without a doubt, to maintain that that stability at the margin, those ESG sentiments are going to have to be addressed. Um, and that just gets back to thinking about ways to be more more sustainable, right, to use the sort of common sort of environmental catchphrase. Um, But sustainability for for a lot of operators really does mean addressing methane, addressing flaring, doing what you can do to reduce your carbon intensity of your activities. Um, But at the end of the day, if you can just reduce costs, it's going to matter a lot.
1: Right. Well, kind of related to that as far as reducing costs and maybe kind of for the companies in the oilfield services space spreading out, you mentioned, um, you know, some of those other areas where there is overlap in the supply chain. There are real issues in the supply chain's. Of some of the renewables technologies, not only that they require hydrocarbons, but you know some of these, you know, there's a lot of supply chain risk with minerals that go into batteries. Um, you know, how do we how do we kind of talk about that and maybe the opportunity for these companies that are in, for example, the the upstream supply chain to be able to work across all these different areas in in new so energy?
0: There's huge opportunities. I mean, a lot of this does require outside of the box thinking right? Um, If you think about supply chain management, that's just a logistics problem. Um, And I can't think of an industry that is better equipped to deal with logistics problems than the oil and gas industry, right? So um, stepping into that space would seem like a pretty pretty much a no-brainer. Um, yes, it's, it's uncomfortable at first because you're talking about, you know, things in dimension, in different dimensions. Um, but at its core, you're still talking about mining for rare earths, minerals, metals. Um, you know, the mining industry is not super competitive. Doesn't mean it always has to remain that way. Um, but, To uh, sort of disrupt the status quo, it requires entry. And entry, of course, requires opportunity. And I would say right now there's a massive opportunity. Um, But just to think even more far afield, um, you know, we're actually involved at Rice in looking at uh, nature-based solutions for carbon dioxide emissions. And this really fits under the umbrella of companies that have net zero ambitions that are looking at Scope 3 emissions, Um, so things that happen after the fuel leaves their hands, right? Um, And natural solutions have tremendous potential. I mean, there's some literature that estimates because of land use practices, um, because of modern agricultural practices, um, the loss the soil carbon deficit uh, since industrialization is on the order of 20 to 30%, which is a big number. Um, we'll never get all that back because you're talking about urban development. You're not going to tear up cities, so you can have you know trees and soils and dirt. Yeah. So, but there are areas we can get some of it back. That can put a massive dent in the overall emissions profile. I mean, you can think about the Earth as a closed ecosystem, right? So when we talk about uh, CO2 in the atmosphere and its contributions to climate change, it's really about the balance because there's CO there's carbon in the atmosphere, there's carbon in the in the soils. So in the earth, and there's carbon in the oceans. And it's what's that balance between those three spaces. And if we've got a massive soil carbon deficit, then what that tells you is if you can figure out a way to restore that, you bring balance back to the equation. And so nature-based solutions sort of fit in that umbrella and in that uh, that domain. Now, one of the areas where we're engaged is in soil carbon, which is, it's not agriculture in the traditional sense. You're not talking about croplands. You're talking about prairies and grasslands and ranchlands. So Um, where you have rotational grazing and stuff like that you can do. But soil carbon is derived from photosynthesis. You know, the the plant grows, um, the sunlight does its trick with the leaves, the leaves are soaking up the the CO2, converting it into longer chain carbohydrates then are are stored in the plant matter, right? So that includes the root systems, and so it's in the soil. Well, there's ways to measure that. Um, Companies are looking at ways to... Monetize that and claim soil carbon storage as a means of as an offset, the means to offset emissions associated with what they do. Um, you know there are there are companies, for example, in the LNG business that are looking at this very actively to deliver zero carbon LNG, right? So these sorts of things are happening and they're very real. The biggest problem, the biggest challenge it's facing that space is measurement and verification to actually know. If you pay somebody for a service that they say they're providing, you're actually getting what you, because at some point it's going to be audited, right?
1: And well, dirt looks like dirt. Uh,
0: dirt looks like dirt. That's exactly right. <laughs> so so you need to come up with measurement protocols so that you can verify that a certificate is actually delivering what it says it's delivering. Um, and companies want that because they want to know they're getting what they paid for. Well, This is an area that hasn't been commercialized yet. So you have to understand that before I start to go through the story about how you measure and verify right now. And again, just to remind everybody, this is outside the box thinking. Well, currently, if I am going to measure soil carbon storage, the typical way I'd do it is I'd take a team of grad students and postdocs out into a field with a pickup truck and I'd dig a three meter pit, fill the back of the truck up with soil, take the soil to a lab, incinerate it and measure the carbon residue. That would tell me, you know, as a as a as an approximate indicator what the soil carbon in that region is, right? And so I'd have a measurement. And then I'd have to do that periodically to make sure that, you know, either soil carbon's growing or see if it's if it's if it's falling, depending on how land use is is being managed in that region. And so that's a that's a challenge. It's very labor intensive. It's brute force, right? Well, think about what I just described. And you think of an industry that could put on the back of a truck, something that could punch a three meter core, incinerate a sample and measure the residue, me- measure the carbon residue on site I and can do this rapidly, a right? A
1: whole lot of companies it do It changes
0: that. the entire nature of soil carbon storage, right? Because you're commercializing part of the value chain. Well, that's what I mean by outside the box thinking and I, and Honestly, I think the oilfield services industry is well situated to sort of grab that as an opportunity uh, because it's a real opportunity and it's growing. And if you want to understand whether or not there's policy support for it, there is. Oh, um, for sure. The Growing Climate Solutions Act was actually just uh, um, introduced in the Senate Ag Committee uh, over the summer, this just in June. Um, and it's got bipartisan support. Um Ranging from uh, Lindsey Graham to Sheldon Whitehouse, so that broad, right? So these sorts of things are moving at the international level. The UK government—we've actually had conversations with them. They're very interested in this space because they're looking at a national level for ways to come up with zero carbon or net zero carbon solutions, and um, uh, soil carbon sequestration is right at the core of what they're doing. So this is not just a, a local discussion. This is something that's happening internationally, and. It's remarkable to see all of the different enterprises that are emerging for measurement and verification, which are based on use use of uh, eddy variance, uh, uh flux towers, eddy covariance flux towers, to measure sort of atmospherically what's happening on a second by second basis and give you an approximation for how what soil carbon flux looks like. And you know, these are all great, very data intensive methods, but at their core, they still need that three meter core sample. So to me it's an opportunity.
1: It is and that gets back to how the upstream supply chain, you know, looks a whole lot like the oh, new yeah. energy supply chain.
0: Absolutely. Um and and just to take it one step further, right? If if oil field services companies are in that space, then they're actually providing a service that is facilitating growth of a natural solution that addresses a lot their of, own emissions. It, it addresses does. ESG concerns, just all sorts of things. It, that it addresses their customers'
1: net carbon zero goals, Absolutely. which is where, you know, and, and we talk about this a lot. You know, a lot of the operators have said, okay, you know, um, zero carbon. We're And and then they turn to their oil field service providers and say, all right, how are we going to do this? Show me exactly what you're going to do. Exactly. A lot of this falls on the weight of, of that of that sector, do you want to talk a little bit? As long as we're talking about kind of these things, hydrogen in yeah. that space, I mean, since it's it's kind of the the sexy thing to be talking about right now.
0: Absolutely. So hydrogen is an interesting one, and it's not the first time we've had a conversation about hydrogen. Um, if you think back to and, and the big driver here was energy security, right? There was a lot of discussion in the late '90s, early 2000s about the future of transportation and discussions about hydrogen fuel cells and what's going to take to make that happen. And then there was discussion about hybridization and certain companies, you know, took their bets. Toyota went with hybrids. You know, GM was was all in on on fuel cell technology. Well, 20 years later, we kind of know who won that, right? It was the hybrids that took off. Um, But the interesting thing about that story is it continued to evolve. Um, And now Toyota has plans for fuel cell vehicles in their own, you know, production lines. Um, This isn't going to happen overnight. Um, We've actually heard from some uh, reps from Toyota about what it takes for product design and Sort of the life cycle of of uh, the engineering life cycle and design life cycle of new products it's it's on decadal scales right but it's certainly something that has grabbed a lot of attention and 2020 in in many respects is the year of hydrogen it's almost weekly it, um, it you is. Can hear a discussion about it right so um the interesting thing about it though is there's already an active market for hydrogen um. Typically, we use, uh, you know, steam methane reformation to get hydrogen from natural gas. Um, High-purity form of CO2 comes out of that, um, but you also get hydrogen, which is used in you know, refining and various chemical processes, whatever. Um, but that market, is, it exists. It's just relatively small. And what a lot of folks are looking at now is how do you scale it? Um, but of course, the discussion about scaling ultimately comes with a discussion about capturing the CO2 emissions um this has led some folks down the road um of talking about using renewables with electrolysis to generate hydrogen um you're effectively splitting water molecules um the water is a pretty stable molecule that's uh that's an expensive process in many respects when you think about the existing infrastructure that exists around the planet to move natural gas um we can get into the color coding discussion. So gray versus blue versus green hydrogen, right? Um, uh, The electrolysis, obviously, is green. The blue would be using sort of the gray hydrogen value chain, but strapping on the back end of it, carbon capture. Um, Well, in many respects, that's cheaper because you are effectively developing natural gas the same way you always have. You're putting it on pipelines, putting it through LNG facilities and shipping around the world To various points of end use the same way we always have. Just with the SMR, you're talking about a different mode of combustion, right? Convert it to hydrogen, which can be stored on site, it can be used directly, um, and then capture the CO2. So what that does is it leverages the existing infrastructure and it allows the transition to a hydrogen economy to, um, you know, happen at a pace that is just to be blunt, reasonable.
1: It is, and that's an important part of it yes. is how you get that all together. That's why batteries are so expensive and rely on hydrocarbons. Well, it,
0: it gets to, you've got an established value chain, right? And so um, any anything you can do to facilitate goals that are focused on sustainability using existing infrastructure, they should win. Uh, and it really is incumbent upon the industry to figure out how to be part of that solution rather than be uh, an antagonist to it. So um, you're seeing that already start to happen. Uh, and I think you're going to see more and more of that as time time goes by. And it really does mean it, at, at its core, if you're talking about a blue hydrogen world, you're still drilling oil and gas wells. Um, and to take it a step further, uh, there's some work going on at Rice. Uh, we launched the Carbon Hub just before the pandemic hit. Um, what is this? It is a material science effort. You might say, "Well, material science? Why?" Because what we're talking about is using a known technology, so pyrolysis combustion of a hydrocarbon feedstock, which is um, it gives you hydrogen and then a carbon black, so a residue instead of because it's an oxygen-starved combustion uh, uh, reactor, and it gives you something that's a solid residue, so carbon black. Now, carbon black as a market is really thin uses an additive in tires. And if we start to use these types of, you know, uh, uh, methods of combustion to generate hydrogen, there's just gonna be way, we'll be swimming in in fine powder carbon, carbon, right? So in carbon black. And so we gotta figure out what to do with it. Well, it turns out, and this has already been demonstrated in a lab, it just needs to be scaled and commercialized, right? you can use that as a feedstock for all sorts of uh, uh carbon nanofiber technologies so you can start to generate you know things that from the carbon black feedstock um that have varying tensile strength so you can think about things that could ultimately replace steel and building materials yeah, you can think profess. about yeah you can think about clothing can hold a charge that's mm-hmm. kind of an interesting thing to think about right for your cell phone um you can think about uh uh, uh you know body parts for cars mm-hmm. Uh, and and transport you know, just in general in the transportation industry, all that does is lightweight everything, and it competes directly with steel, which is also an energy-intensive commodity space. Uh, it's too expensive now, but twenty thirty years from now, maybe it won't be. And then what you're talking about is very interestingly the hydrocarbon value chain being the solution for the, the CO two issue. Yeah,
1: that's a whole lot different than coal yeah. ash, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's Very exactly different. the opposite, yeah. right? Being able to use the byproducts.
0: That's like exactly that. right. Yeah.
1: Um. Earlier, when you were talking, and I didn't want to interrupt you, kind of got into a little bit closer to policy that's going to drive some of these things. So, with COVID nineteen and how we're looking at various levels of stimulus, you know, maybe trying to get some elements of the green new deal in there how much do you see that happening potentially in a potential biden administration um i agree and and i've heard you say the train has left the station we're going to invest in these things we are moving forward that way how much does a potential administration very focused on climate change change that in in the short-term policy levers the Petroleum Equipment and Services Association is the global trade association for the oil services sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy and Transition podcast. We support OFS in international trade, supply chain, health and safety, environmental policy, and a number of other areas. Our Energy Transition Committee is focused on sharing best practices in sustainability, collaboration with renewables technologies, and driving a smart energy transition. Please join us at pisa.org.
0: Well, you have to realize, I think, first what the federal government can do versus what politicians say they want to do. Those are those are not always those two rows don't always meet, right? There's been a lot of discussion, for example, about banning hydraulic fracturing. Well, on federal lands, yeah, that's an easy thing to do. But on private lands, it's a totally different discussion. Um, you're getting into private property rights. That, that's a constitutional issue. So it will require legislative action, um, not just pres- executive order. So different level of conversation there. Um, I don't think that is really an issue. Now, certain things can be done to make it more expensive. Right. And take um, longer. Yeah, and take longer, so extending permitting times, all that kind of stuff. But, um, but at the end of the day, uh, for a variety of reasons, I don't think that necessarily is going to be the path that is taken. I think you will see a lot of interest in trying to take steps to facilitate broader use of, um, uh, so broader electrification, broader use of renewable resources, broader use of battery technologies. Um, I think natural gas will play an incredibly important role Um, regardless of of who wins the election, actually. Uh, Oil is going to remain a staple um, because of its prevalence in transportation. I know there's a lot of interest in electrifying a vehicle fleet, but there's a lot of vehicles to replace. (laughs) Um, And it's not going to happen in 10 years. There's just no way it can. Um, So that means oil is going to be around as a transportation fuel for a while. Um, It also means that rationality sets in Um, and you start to realize, well, maybe there's ways to encourage broader use of carbon capture technologies. And I really think that'll be a a staple of of a Biden administration. It's already, you already see, like the DOE already has programs that are focused on carbon capture. Uh, Those types of things are agnostic to who's in office. They exist. Uh, They're funded. It's sort of a line item that continues, right? And it's what the national labs do. They're, they're sort of core to all this work. But, um, but thinking more generally about how carbon markets develop, uh, I think under a Biden administration, it's the likelihood of a, a a national clean energy standard, a national carbon price, you know, either through a fee and dividend program like Secretary Baker Secretary Schultz have proposed or just an outright tax. I mean, I think the likelihood of things, these things happening is increased. Um, Of course, what that does is it creates commercial opportunity um, to decarbonize, you know, the energy value chain. And that plays very well into oilfield services space because you're talking about carbon capture now.
1: Carbon capture. You already see so many of the companies that I work with involved in that. And Houston has taken a lead role in that. I know you've been involved in that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, we've been, as a matter of fact, this morning after I was on the thing in Riyadh, I was actually on the Global Carbon Capture Institute's uh, workshop focused on carbon capture in Texas. Uh, and we're leading an initiative that is Texas focused. Um that's the interesting thing about it, getting back to policymakers. Um ultimately when it comes to the installation of infrastructure uh and and punching holes in the ground, it's a local issue. It's a state issue. It's not a federal issue. And so uh state by state that policy those policy dimensions can vary dramatically. Uh and so it becomes a very locally focused discussion. Um In the state of Texas, there's already a lot of movement on resolving some of the legal and regulatory uncertainties that exist as potential hurdles to broader use of carbon capture and storage. Um, And there's even some discussion uh, about fiscal measures, um, which I find really interesting, particularly in a post-COVID world where that would seem almost unthinkable. Um, But you have to realize in a state like Texas where poor space can be leased, for storage. And if it's on state lands, that means there is a revenue stream to the state education fund. There's a return on investment. So this enters into the conversation and presents all sorts of really interesting possibilities.
1: And there's so many states right now, I, I think that would jump on that though, but that are so, you know, ready to end their hydrocarbon development without really thinking about what that's going to do to their state budget. I'm talking about New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, I hear
0: you. Um, New just... Mexico, setback rules in Colorado, same you know, same sort of thing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, particularly in states where you don't have state in, a state income tax, it's a sales tax revenue state, um, and you realize, and property taxes, and you realize property values are going to be diminished dramatically and property tax revenues are going to drop if you start to do some of these things. Um, that is the the quote-unquote rubber-hits-the-road moment um, that I think everybody's going to have to reconcile. Um, I do know state of New Mexico, they're really interested in a lot of, because they've been involved in our working group conversations. They're really interested in the natural solutions angle because they very much understand how important the Permian Basin is to the state. So it's uh, yeah, they're thinking outside the box too. That's good. Yeah.
1: Um, back to kind of broader demand. So I know you've talked a lot about how some people – Think okay, you know we've seen peak oil, and then some people say okay, as soon as this COVID nineteen situation is done, you know we'll get a vaccine and everything will come back and we'll roar back even faster. Where do you fall in between those two?
0: Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, first of all, everything shut down in March, um, to the tune of uh, you know. Average GDP growth rates are projected now to be a 4% drop, right, uh, relative to 2019 globally. That's a huge hit. Um, On net, that really didn't destroy as much demand as you might think it would. So we asked half the world's population to stay at home, and demand did not really fall by half. It fell by a much smaller fraction. It fell dramatically, and we felt it, right? Uh, Energy markets, you know, the the ripple effects were tangible. But at the end of the day, you realize how important energy is just to existence, right? Uh, Much less economic activity. And so why is that? It's because there's a certain amount of installed capital in place that is, there's technology embodied in that installed capital that uses certain forms of energy that doesn't turn over overnight. And so you might ramp down the utilization of that capital, but as soon as economic activity picks back up, you haven't replaced it with something new you have to use what you had. And so it'll turn back on. And so that's going to pull demand back up. Now, where you might see some drag is in industries where habit persistence is going to, you know, uh, bear a burden. So for example, the airline industry, people just aren't going to go immediately back to flying around the world the way they did before. Um, And so new habits have been created. And so it's going to take time to overcome those sorts of things. Um, But Without a doubt, the installed capital is still the installed capital, and it's still going to use the same forms of energy we've always used um, that's a short term story. Um, I am not one to think that oil demand is peaked uh, it really is for me just a numbers game. Um, you think about what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation you know the one point three billion in the oecd the um you know 3.3, 3.4 billion in developing Asia and the other 3 billion people around the world that are looking for access to energy. Um, all of the demand growth in the last 20 years has come from the non-OECD, largely developing Asia. That still leaves the other 3 billion or so people around the world looking to grow. Uh, it's going to happen. Um, in fact, in the OECD, demand has been flat for over overall for energy. It's same true for oil actually declined a little bit for oil in the last 20 years, but you get the point, right? It's what, what we see every day outside our windows. It's happening in the U.S. and Canada and Europe. That, that's not the rest of the world. I mean, and just to put a stamp on this, right? If every country in the OECD were to, were to somehow miraculous be able to cut CO2 emissions to zero tomorrow, global CO2 emissions would only drop to the levels that were were present in 1995. That's because of what's happening everywhere else. So this is a bigger story than just what's happening in the US and Europe. It um, is. And so what that means is when you look around the world and you see what's going on, it's demand still growing for those for everything. It's not just a, you know, yes it, Demand in China for nuclear power is going up and they're installing nuclear power. Demand for renewables is growing. Yes. Demand for electric vehicles is growing. Yes. But guess what's also growing? Demand for internal combustion engine vehicles. I mean, I remember, um, you know, one of my graduate students talking about, did you see this this press? And this is a year ago. You know, China surpassed the one million vehicle mark for new EV sales. And I said, read the rest of the story. Um, because I think that's important. Don't get lost in one data point, right? And total vehicle sales that, you know, I think it was in 2018 were around 24.6 million vehicles. And I was like, that means on the order of 23.2, 23.3 million vehicles were sold and they were internal combustion engine vehicles. It's a big number, right? Um, So you kind of have to look at the whole story. Don't get caught up in one aspect of it. Yes, other things are growing. And yes, that will mean market share falls. But if the pie is getting bigger, does that really matter? I think that's a a useful thing to consider.
1: It's very useful, especially in this current political context. I mean, when we are really talking about this, the climate change issue and how it's driving, you know, this this election in particular, I just wish that that conversation was more focused on the global context.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you talk about CO2, it is a problem of the global commons. Um and, you know, personally, I'm sort of struck when you hear about, like, the state of California, Governor Newsom wanting to ban combustion internal engines. combustion in vehicles. I can see where you might take that as it's a lead, right, and others will follow. But at its core, do you really think what happens in California is going to affect the global emissions footprint? It's not. Yes, I get the argument. Everybody needs to do their part, right? But. Typically, when we talk about that stuff, it's not we're going to do what we're going to do and damn the rest of the world. It's this is a problem of the global commons. It requires a multilateral approach. So let's all talk about it. Um, and, you know, that that actually is important. You asked about the next administration. That's actually a value add, I think, that a Biden administration could bring is reentry into the Paris agreement because it puts us puts the U.S. back at the table. And the U.S. has forever been a leader technologically. and not being part of the conversation is a problem. So regardless of who wins the election, I hope that that is something that is recognized in the multilateral approaches to global issues kind of back, front, and center in, in the conversation.
1: I agree. That's a perfect kind of sentiment to end it on is not being a part of the conversation is a problem. And to the extent that the companies that we work with and not just in oilfield services, but across the industry can really become part of a solution in some of these areas that we talked about. I mean, there's opportunity there for us.
0: There's massive opportunity. Um, You know, I said it earlier. You think about the engineering prowess, um, the technical prowess, the knowledge of the subsurface, the knowledge of technologies that are used to solve everyday problems and value chains, logistics issues. This industry is as successful as it is because it's figured all that stuff out. Now it's just about figuring out how to apply that in different dimensions. And there's plenty of opportunity, without a doubt. And it puts you front and center in the conversation.
1: I agree 100%. Well, thank you, Dr. Medlock, so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you coming to the studio. I know you're teaching some of your students remotely right now and some of them in (laughs) class. It's got to be such an interesting dynamic on the campus at Rice right now. It's
0: very interesting. I got to say Rice has been phenomenal uh, in terms of how it's dealt with the pandemic. success story. Without a doubt, positivity rate on campus is 0.1%.
1: Are you serious? Yeah,
0: it's remarkable. Um, very strict guidance on mask wearing, on social distancing to the point where Rice Police Department is on campus making sure things are happening the way they should.
1: Wow. Um, and
0: it's, you know, to be on campus, we get tested once a week. Mm-hmm. So you kind of know what's going on. Is it the yucky
1: test where it goes all the way? You no, know, they stop doing, your... doing that. They oh,
0: stop doing that. Yeah, good. the, the, the tickle your brain. You. one. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> last week they they went to just the nasal swab. So oh, um, it's I bet you glad. Yeah, but 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 it's been a it's been a success story so much so that it was actually written up recently, um, uh, in the national press because it's it's just an example of what what you can do. It's learning how to live with it, right? Learning how to cope.
1: That's what we're all going to need. And yeah. some universities have really not done it well. So congratulations no, no. to thank you guys you. on that. And thanks for being here. Of course. Um, and that's it for us. So thank you so much for everyone. Please reach out to me at Elbire Energy and Transition. Um, And thank you so much. Signing off from the Fletcher Azul Tequila tequila Studio in Houston. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyintransition.com. And we'll catch you in the next episode.